Hello and welcome everyone. I'm your host Osama Gawish and this is Untold Stories podcast. Before we start this episode, I have a question for our listeners. Did you watch the Eternal movie? If your answer is yes, so you may be familiar with our story today. If not, no problem. Here we go. The Terminal is a 2004 American comedy drama film produced and directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Tom Hanks, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Stanley Tucci. The film is about an Eastern European man who is stuck in a New York John Kennedy Airport terminal when he is denied entry to the United States and at the same time is unable to return to his native country because of a military coup. In 2018, Hassan al-Kuntar was forced to live the terminal movie in reality, his own life story known as The Man at the Airport, after spending seven months at Malaysia Airport followed by two months in detention. Hassan was raised in a prosperous Syrian home, the middle child of a mechanical engineer and a nurse. He worked in marketing from 2006 to 2011 until he was forced to hide from authorities in the United Arab Emirates. Now he is a permanent resident based in Vancouver. He continues to advocate for refugees around the world, and he's working for Canadian Red Cross, and he's the author of the book, Man at the Airport. Kuntar was working in Dubai, when war broke out in Syria in 2011, knowing he would be forced to fight if he went back home. He stayed in the United Arab Emirates after his passport and work visa both expired, and was eventually deported to Malaysia. After being refused entry to Cambodia, Ecuador, Malaysia, and Turkey, he found himself stranded in the arrival section of Kuala Lumpur Airport, a transit zone without restaurants or shops. For eight months, he slept under stairwells, showered in a disabled toilet, and ate donated airline meals. He feels lucky to have been granted asylum, a status achieved with the help of a few Canadians he called his Avenger team, who sponsored him privately for resettlement. One of them and his own real-life hero, Laura Cooper, a media relations consultant at Canada Caring Organization. She, along with some friends, organized Contar's resettlement in Canada. Laura is a former journalist. She traveled to Lesbos in fall 2015. She has traveled to Greece four times to work with refugees and founded Canada Caring Society in 2016. Lori started sponsoring refugees in 2016 and launched Operation Not Forgotten in 2019. The project has since raised over $3.5 million and applications have been submitted for over 250 refugees and family members through Canada's private sponsorship program. Now Hassan carries the weight of knowing that, though he has made it to safety, many others have not. He's still receiving hate comments, especially from Malaysia and the Arab world, even from his home country, Syria. For some, he betrayed his country. For others, he ran away from his duties. Hassan lobbies on behalf of detainees in Manus Islands, Australia's offshore detention centers. He's speaking Canadian schools about his experience and is using his story to push wider knowledge about what is happening back at home in Syria. So, in this episode, we will know more about untold stories of the man at the airport, 
and will highlight the great work that Laura Cooper is doing to refugees in Canada. So let me welcome my guests in this episode, Hassan Al-Kuntar, who joined us from Zoom, and Laura Cooper, who is with me on the stage as a speaker. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, for having us. And Laura, if you unmute yourself, we can hear your voice. Hi. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, nice to meet you, and nice to hear you, Hassan. Nice to meet you too. So, Hassan, let me start with you. A, a long journey, many dramatic turns in your life. But when we started from the beginning, 15 years ago, you were working in the United Arab Emirates. How do you remember your life then? I was a young adult full of dreams, actually. Uh, uh, life was wonderful. Even my career was booming. I started as an insurance clerk and I ended up in five years acting a branch manager for an insurance company. Uh, my destiny was controlled by me and uh, everything was working according to the plan. I did not at that time pay much attention to the labor law and the system there, I did not understand the concept of human rights and uh, I did not pay much attention for other humans suffering around the world. Um, you can call it selfish, actually, actually. but uh, as I said, I was young. Then uh, after that, when the Syrian war started and I lost my work permit, I start understanding what does it mean to be Syrian and what does it mean to live in a country with no human rights, with a labor work system, uh, almost slavery, modern slavery system, where you cannot even uh, have a permanent residency there, even if you live forever, you cannot hold the citizenship there, even if you were born there, and uh, you are uh, disposable assets, once they are done with you, they can throw you out. Uh, now I understand that, and now um, uh, it, it hurts me how I did not think about it before. But uh, Dubai is the land of the dreamers, it's a land of money. Uh, Towers, nightclubs, uh, highways, uh, uh, luxury cars and boats. And uh, you got caught in that when you lived there. Uh, but once you uh, start realizing other uh, concepts in life, uh, you should ask yourself the right questions. Who built these towers and where do they live? How much salary do they get? Um, so uh, now looking back, I don't think uh, it was the right experience for me. I don't think I meant to be in that country or any other country with no human rights. Um, and uh, th that's why I'm thankful and grateful for being here in Canada. Uh, do, I do I want to correct it? If the time goes back, do I need to correct it? No, because we learn from our mistakes and uh, they made us uh, the way we are today. So it was a good experience for me to learn mm -hmm. and to gain all the survival um, uh, skills I needed to survive at the end. Okay, you, you described Dubai as a land of dreams and it is actually many people like to travel to Dubai for holidays and even for work if you have a, a good job there. But... How did you end at the airport of Malaysia? Well, uh, uh, to, just to add one more note uh, to your uh, describing uh, for Dubai. Uh, each city has two places, it's, uh, uh, and you can see it through uh, two pairs of eyes. The first one is the eye of 
tourism, uh, uh, when you go for a tourism visa there and you have a lot of money, that, uh, you are, um, to be frank, you are European or American or Canadian, white guy, uh, uh, it's something for you and it's different for us. Uh, uh, you could feel discrimination and racism there uh, on a daily basis. Uh, I think it's a big city and uh, uh, it it's, has been designed for those who are wealthy and uh, have nothing to do in their life but to spend their money. So uh, that's how I think uh, Dubai, uh, about Dubai. Uh, how I ended at the airport? I but, um, um, before, before you answer this question, because something here is strange. I'm a refugee. You are a refugee in Canada. We are living in uh, Western countries. We are Middle Eastern um, citizen. So is it strange that you describe an Arabic country that with discrimination and racism and you are now living in Canada? It is not even a uh, Middle Eastern country? Well, I uh, I can understand what you are implying to because we are both Arabs and we should stick to our people. I uh, don't do that. I stick to humanity. And uh, uh, people for me has absolutely no difference if they are Arab, if they are Jewish, if they are Kurds, if they are Western, uh, no matter what their color or race or gender is. What I care about is humans on individual level. So, uh, um, if Dubai or Syria, I, I can speak a lot of things about even Syria or the Syrian regime. Uh, it means nothing for me. I will call it out when I see something wrong. Yeah. Despite the nationality or those who are uh, holding it. So uh, I don't know if you visited Dubai or not, but if you do, you should uh, feel what I just said. I'm not. I lived there. Uh, well, I lived there for 11 years. I was uh, in Dubai, Sharjah, and Abu Dhabi. I know it uh, uh, from top to bottom, and I know how people are leveled there, and I know how the uh, the system is, is full of uh, Okay, so if, if you go back to how did you end at the airport in Malaysia? Uh, uh, I ran out of options because of my nationality. Uh, I... Uh, they deported me from uh, United Arab Emirates, and uh, I end up in Malaysia because it's one of the few countries who allowed Syrians on arrival visa for three months only. Malaysia is not a signatory of the 1951 Refugee Convention, therefore I could not seek asylum there. So I tried to escape to Ecuador. Uh, because it's a signatory of the Refugee Convention and uh, allowing Syria on arriving visa only. But I could not arrive to Ecuador because Turkish airline did not allow me to board. Uh, so I lost all my money. A week after that, I tried Cambodia uh, because they allowing Syria on for one month only. And because I did not want to end up illegal in Malaysia the same way I was in uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, Cambodian authorities did not accept me and they sent me back to Malaysia who did not allow me to enter again. And uh, I found myself in a limbo. I stuck at the airport uh, because there was no other countries who were allowing me to enter. Hmm. And can you describe your first days there in the Malaysia airport? One of the lowest moments and uh, days in my life. I uh, I knew that I was in a serious problem. Uh, I knew that uh, this is it. This is the end. This is my main war. This is my main battle. And um, I needed to uh, to find a solution. I was desperate, hopeless, um, powerless, voiceless. 
uh, and voiceless was the most important one because um, I tried to seek any formal uh, solution like contacting UNHCR, which is the United Nations Refugee Commissioner, and uh, other embassies in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I tried everything uh, via email, but it did not work. Uh, I did not even inform my family that uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm stuck at the airport because they were still and they are still in Syria. They are facing their own tragedy and misery. I did not want just to be uh, an, another burden in their shoulders. So, uh, yeah, when and in, yeah, and in, in my introduction, I, I mentioned the terminal movie. So what are the, the difference between the, the movie and your real life? It's, it's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned the movie because that was, uh, and still actually, the first questions uh, <laughs> uh, on the media. I made, it, I made it the third uh, question, you know? Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, uh, I came up with my own version of an answer, uh, a funny one, just to... To make sure, uh, they, uh, well, that's the problem at the airport. Uh, they were all asking what I was doing at the airport. And the, the real question should be, the main question should be, why I am at the airport? And uh, that was the main struggle between me and the media all the time. So whenever they ask me this question, I will say, um, well, he has Catherine Zeta-Jones, for the love of God, and I have no one. Uh, bring me Catherine, and mm. I will wait for as long as she wants. <laughs> uh, the daily life is similar. I, that was still a movie. I was, um, for the first 22 days, I did not know how to take a shower, where to drive my clothes, how to clean my clothes. Uh, even a cup of coffee at the morning, it was a real struggle. Uh, but if you give yourself the time to think, if you cool down, if you did not panic, um, uh, you will start finding keys for all your problems. And, yeah. uh, 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 that, uh, you don't need to panic. That's the first one. And yeah, by, by will... mentioning the movie and the difference, I think in your real, real life, y you have a brave person who were thinking about you, who helped you and offer a strong support to bring you um, to Canada. Laura, um, it's a fascinating story, what you have done to Hassan and what you are doing to refugees in Canada. But I want to ask you about when was the first time you heard about Hassan, a Syrian refugee, is stuck in Malachi Airport? Well, there um, I'm part of a network of volunteers uh, predominantly Canadian and American, that had been helping uh, with the European refugee crisis since uh, 2015. And uh, one of the members of this group, Vanya, who is from Ontario, uh, she had been contacted by a young Syrian woman who was living as a refugee. And um, this woman was a former journalist, and she had heard about Hassan's story, and she contacted... Um, Vanya to uh, ask if she thought there was anything that could be done. Canada is, um, I'm very grateful to say, uh, the only country in the world that has a private sponsorship program, which means that a group of five individuals or more, but minimum of five, can um, privately sponsor a refugee to come. So in the beginning, we didn't 
think about sponsorship, but there was a group of us that got together. There were about seven or eight people in the group. And uh, we, um, one of the group men- members, Stephen Watt, um, became the primary communications person with Hassan. Um, and we as a group started to think about possible solutions. So some people thought there was an opportunity for him to go to New Zealand. Some thought maybe France. Um, but my experience with sponsoring people to Canada I said, well, I'm going to look into that option. And uh, the main thing we wanted to do was maintain, um, you know, Hassan's visibility in in the media, which he uh, handled just so amazingly well, um, so that nothing bad could happen to him if, if we felt if the eyes of the world were on him. And we also thought that as soon as we submitted an application for a sponsorship to come to Canada, um, <clears throat> he would in a way have kind of de facto protection from the Canadian government. So, uh, so you submitted uh, this application to the Canadian government, not to the United Nation or. That's right. So as I say, uh, normally refugees yeah. are placed through the UN, uh, UNHCR, but in Canada, if you know someone who's a refugee, uh, you have to raise enough funds to show that you could support that person for the first 12 months that they're in Canada and you have to provide support in terms of helping them find jobs and places to live and stuff. So we completed that paperwork pretty darn quickly uh, and Hassan um, had so many uh, supporters by that time that it was easy to raise the necessary funds through a GoFundMe. And uh, yes, then we submitted the application and then we heard nothing. (laughs) And so it became a long waiting game with a lot of lobbying and a lot of good people um, speaking out on behalf of Hassan. But um, after this, nothing, after the um, frustrating response, what did you do with your team? <laughs> well, we continued to you know, support Hassan in any ways uh, we could, whether it was um, emotional support by, um, you know, texting and communicating. Uh, we also, uh, you know, the, the, the social media can be so awful, but it can also be wonderful. Um, and I had been contacted by a young woman who was a teacher, uh, American woman, but she was working at an international school in Kuala Lumpur. And she had read about Hassan's story and she asked, uh, she contacted me, said, how can we help? And she said, you know, a lot of teachers travel on long weekends and holidays and they come through that particular terminal where um, Hassan was living, if you can call it that. And uh, so she said, you know, can we, I think the first thing, Hassan, you could probably answer. I think the first thing, one of the first things that uh, she brought him uh, was a, a cell phone. Um, because I think his cell phone had broken, um, which was his lifeline. Um, but through that, over the time, there were numerous teachers, uh, Canadian and American, who would bring him clothing or toiletries, uh, I think maybe a sleeping mat even. So there was a sort of this informal coffee, coffee. group. Coffee? <laughs> yeah, no, forgetting coffee. And chocolate. Yeah, and so, chocolate. Yeah. I ended up with a lot of chocolate. And you don't you, like chocolate. You gain a lot of weight. That's why I end up with a lot, because I don't like it. <laughs> so I did not eat it. 
Wow. So we so. continued. We continued. Um, uh, Hassan, if anyone wants to look back uh, um, on his Twitter feed, he produced some amazing videos about his life. He was always upbeat. He was never angry or uh, complaining. He was always very positive and continued to share the message that his situation was not about him. It was about all Syrians and all refugees who are not recognized by, you know, governments. And so he, his um, social media presence became huge. Uh, He got a lot of publicity through that. At the same time, we were quietly, I was working very closely with an, a prominent refugee lawyer here in Canada, Andrew Brower. And uh, Andrew and I were quietly and consistently lobbying, pestering, harassing the Minister of Immigration and his staff, trying to uh, get them to expedite the processing of Hassan's application. Wow. Every time I listen to your story, Hassan, or read about it, I think um, my heartbeat increases rapidly. So because it's, it's, um, it's a very hard times waiting any positive news, any good news from Canada or from Malaysia. So my question, did you give up there at some point and say, okay, this is the end of my story. They will send me back to Syria? Uh, uh, no, not at all. Um, at the beginning, yes, before uh, Lori and her team uh, got involved. After that, I started seeing hope again and I restored my faith in humanity. But before that, I knew that uh, Syria was the only logical solution. Uh, and, uh, the, even the authorities there in Malaysia were uh, were trying to force me to go back to Syria. Uh, uh, but... Um, here, when you face a difficult situation in your life where you know that uh, here's where your future is going to uh, be determined, um, you start rediscovering yourself and understanding life from a different perspective. And uh, um, I, 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 I told myself when I start the social media campaign that uh, I'm, I'm going to tell uh, the Syrian story. Uh, when I succeeded in doing that, when I achieved the goal, it did not matter the outcome on an individual level. I discovered that who we become during our march towards our dream is more important than the dream itself. Uh, I, I had the goal of telling my story, and I did. Um, and uh, um, death for me, uh, for Syrians uh, who face war for 11 years is, uh, is not something uh, to scare them. It's the only certain fact in our present and future. So whatever we are having now, it's actually an extra. Mm-hmm. That's why we are trying to enjoy it the fullest because it's not meant to happen and it's not happening for a lot of Syrians. Yeah. Uh, uh, fear and was I afraid or scared? Uh, afraid? Yes, but it's not a bad thing. Uh, I think it's a motive. It's uh, uh, it's also uh, your clue that you are not in denial and you are aware of the serious situation you are have you are having or you are facing. Uh, it, it is a motive, and uh, uh, with the time you get used to the environment, uh, even with all the investigation. 
Sometimes, some days, there will be uh, seven to eight investigations from different authorities, from different departments, government departments in Malaysia. Um, mm. Everyone will come to uh, investigate me for uh, two hours, an hour and a half to two hours for seven to eight mo- times. I was 24-7 under civilian. From cameras were following me everywhere. Even the people who will come to say hello to me or take a selfie, uh, they will be stopped by immigration and uh, uh, all security and uh, check uh, questions. There was a time when there was a, a, a TP who's, uh, who will, uh, they will seize their cameras, investigate them for hours, erase all the videos and send them back home. So uh, the harassment is always there. Yeah. But the idea, the idea that of saying no to the system, of standing up for what you believe in, uh, to become the rebellion or the revolutionary you always wanted to be, that is uh, priceless and it counts for something. Um, and uh, you are saying no to, to to the whole state, to the whole government, hmm. uh, and you are only an individual supported by individuals. Uh, for me, that was something, and I knew that I. Uh, to, to, to success, to win, to be Victorian, I need to hold my ground. And, yeah. I, will... and I think it, it, it was a parallel effort between you and Laurie in Canada. So, Laurie, the same question, actually, considering the bureaucracy and the long time of waiting for these applications to be um, decided, what was the toughest time during your journey to bring Hassan to Canada? Did you give up at some point? Ah. I never, ever gave up. I, I was just determined to, um, <laughs> to get him to Canada or to get him to safety. Really, that was, um, you know, if, if, he, if I couldn't get him to Canada, I needed to help him get to safety. The low point, and, and we haven't really addressed this yet, but after seven months, um, as Hassan became um, you know, increasingly kind of well known in the media, and um, he was there was a very influential vlogger, um, Naz of Naz Daily, who did a story about him, and that finally pushed the Malaysian officials over the edge. They had sort of barely tolerated the fact that um, he was so visible, and really they felt he was embarrassing the Malaysian officials. And um, as Hassan said, they had been increasing the um, surveillance and the harassment. And he, Hassan really just had such a great instinct about where things were going. And he had told me, he said, you know, I think they're going to arrest me at some point. And I think, uh, as I recall, I'm not sure if this is accurate, but basically Hassan had a text message, a WhatsApp message set ready to send to me if he did get uh, arrested so that we would know what was you know happening and I received the message that he'd been arrested I was actually in Venice Italy and I remember getting the message and it was like the floor dropped out beneath him because the Minister of Immigration for Malaysia actually had a press conference and said that they were going to send him back to Syria and we knew that that was effectively a death sentence. Um, I immediately contacted um, the lawyer that we'd been working with, Andrew. And um, Andrew, we had built a network and connections with Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, um, obviously the Canadian government. And we just went into 
you know, full kind of attack. But so that at the I that was the deepest, darkest day. Um and then, you know, Hassan can maybe talk more. He he disappeared. It was how many days, Hassan, before we even knew where you were? Um, I think we, we, we lost Hassan. He will join us we lost within Hassan. a minute. Okay. Yeah, yeah he, so he, he was, will join was, again within so a minute. Was, yeah. Sure. It was, uh, so it was many, many days. We didn't know if he was alive or dead. We didn't know... Um, we had uh, Canadian embassy uh, employees and Amnesty International and um, other uh, refugee groups trying to find out um, what his situation was. We employed uh, uh, a lawyer in Kuala Lumpur to assist us, um, but it was he had gone into a deep black hole yeah. where he could not communicate and you know, we just, we didn't know uh, what was going to happen. He, he's back. If you want to ask him the, the question again. Oh, I, yeah, Hassan, I was just talking about when you were arrested and uh, how many, how many days was it before we even knew if you were alive or dead? It was many days. I think 20, 25 days when the Malaysian lawyer came and sent you a photo. Oh my God. I think it was 25 days. Yeah. Was yeah. I got arrested in uh, October first, and he visited me um, October twenty. So uh, the, the the force disappeared you, or what happened? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, they uh, they came uh, twelve of them, and they arrested me. I immediately informed uh, my Canadian Avenger team, and, uh, and uh, uh, they took me for four days to a police station where they tried to came up with a crime, a criminal crime, a, a criminal uh, like uh, offense, but they could not find anything. Uh, so they handed me to the immigration. Uh, they actually took me to the court the first day they arrived, uh, they arrested me, uh, just to come up with some kind of crime, uh, to justify uh, why they are jailing me. But they could not come up with anything, so they, uh, after four days, they gave me to the immigration department and uh, uh, they, they took me to the t detention center uh, in the head office. It was, they said uh, that it was the nicest detention center they have and it was only a room uh, five by six meters I believe with a overcrowd more than 40 people so for the first 20 days I did not find a place to sleep I was just sitting laying my back to the wall and sleep for an hour or two and then we were routine uh, the cellmates were routine someone would wake up I would take their place and that's how we will spend our night for the first 20 days I could not find a place and then Jail is jail, and yeah. uh, there I, I met people who did nothing wrong in their life except being born in the wrong side of the world, uh, the third world, people from India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, and uh, they have been arrested. So uh, I start telling myself that I have a, a light at the end of the tunnel. I have Lori and uh, all the team is... Uh, uh, trying for me and uh, I will end up in Canada where these people will end up uh, with nothing back to their home country. So I 
could not feel sorry for myself knowing their story yeah. and uh, knowing where I'm going to end and where they are going to When you talk about Laurie and her efforts, one day you described her support by such a great words and I quote, you said whenever you ask people to define and describe hope, they will say it's the light at the end of the dark tunnel, something they can't directly touch or feel, how warm it is. They can't draw a photo of what hope looks like. For me, you said, it's a different story. For me, hope has a human face, Laurie Cooper's face. Why you said that, Hassan? Because I told it. Uh, and that was before I even personally met her. After that, I spent uh, the first six months in uh, my uh, Canadian, new Canadian life in here. Uh, house under her roof with her family, uh, two kids and uh, her husband, and um, that was and still the best six months for me in Canada. That was uh, that's a true family, my family, and um, I, I could feel uh, and I still sense the love they have in that house, and uh, uh, it's the feeling of. Uh, I lost for a long time, and I had it again to be safe and secure. And uh, even uh, she has two cats and a dog, and uh, I felt I fall in love with, the, with with her animal, with the animals she has as well. Hmm. Um, and that's all. I I did not see my mother for my uh, mother for the last thirteen years. Uh, the last time I saw my mother was uh, in uh, late two thousand eight, and uh, seeing Glory, meeting her, or hug her. Uh, it, felt that I met uh, my mother or someone who cares about me, who loves me. And uh, even my family, they did not want me to move from her house. Uh, and uh, they, they felt safe because I'm with her. And, uh, and I believe this is, a, this is a humanity you mentioned. Uh, that, that's the, and, and it's finest forms, actually. Uh, here's the thing, Canadians, uh, Laurie, Stephen, Andrew, Vanya, uh, and all those who were involved, uh, they, they don't know that, but I am, because I'm a refugee, I can say that about them. Uh, they are a Canadian citizenship. It's one, if it's not the greatest, it's one of the greatest citizenship to, to hold, uh, with the passport, which will allow you to enter almost all countries, right? And you have a lot uh, to do in your life. You could uh, enjoy your life traveling, having fun and joy. Uh, yet, uh, they choose to help those who are in need. Hmm. Uh, so, and, yeah, and, yeah. You, you describe your feelings um, yeah, to, to, towards Lori. You feel she's like your mother and she, she remembers you about your mother. So, Laurie, how was your first meeting with Hassan in Canada? <laughs> it was uh, it was amazing. We, we met at the airport, and we had very little notice that uh, Hassan was coming. You know, we obviously, we'd been working and working, working for this, but there was nothing confirmed. And I think we found out maybe less than 24 hours before he arrived that he was on his way. Um, and so the first time I met him was at the airport, and, and honestly, we had been linked so closely for the, 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 the previous nine months. And um, I, I, I truly felt that he was my son coming home. And uh, that, that, was, that was just 
you know, how I felt. He was, he was coming home. He was my son. And um, I was so proud of the way that he had carried himself through an unimaginably difficult ordeal. And uh, um, I know that one image for a three-year-old Kurdish refugee child has changed your life. Would you please tell me more about that image and the story behind it? Sure. Yeah. So um, in early September of 2015, I think uh, everyone around the world was shocked by the image of the little Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, um, the, the picture of his dead body on a Turkish beach. He and his family had been trying to uh, make their way actually to Canada, where his aunt um, lives. And, um, uh, you know, he, he didn't make it. And um, I, when I saw that image, I think everyone who looked at that, I think their hearts broke a little bit. And uh, suddenly it struck me, you know, not as a Canadian, not as, you know, anyone that cares about human rights. It struck me as a mother. And I thought um, a few of a few moms got together. We'd all seen it. And one friend reached out and said, you know, let's get together for coffee and talk about whether we can do some fundraising or donate some clothing or something to the refugees who were uh, making their way to Greece on their way to Northern Europe. And um, we got together and we, you know, we thought, okay, we'll try and help. I was tasked with the job of figuring out how we should help, um, how should we send money. And I, I read some international media reports about the island of Lesbos where 80% of the refugees who were making their way to Northern Europe were passing through this small island with a population of 35,000 people. And they had 800,000 refugees went through there in 2015-2016. And on some days there were up to 9,000 refugees arriving on the beaches in those terrible little boats that you've seen pictures of. And uh, I reached out to a couple of women who were working on the island there that were leading some volunteer efforts. And I said, um, we're a group of Canadian mothers. We'd like to send you some money or some clothing. How can we help? And they said, they both said the same thing. We need money. We need clothing. But what we really need are people here on the ground to help. And I have never done anything like this before. I thought about it for about a day. I looked, I had two weeks of holidays from work available. I had a whole bunch of air miles saved up and I bought a ticket to Greece. And then I told my husband and kids that I was going. And um, a friend ended up coming with me. Uh, we traveled to Lesbos for two weeks. And it, you know, it sounds trite to say, but it was life changing. I met these people who were so courageous, so strong, so resilient, who had made the horrible decision to leave their homes, their families, their culture, the country they love because it was simply too dangerous in most cases for their children. And um, I was just so moved by their humanity and the humanity of the volunteers that I met on the ground. They were mostly young. My friend and I were among the older volunteers. Um, young people from all over the world had just shown up on Lesbos. They'd read about the situation. They just showed up and said, how can I help? And I thought, okay, you know, if these are the people that are going to lead the, 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 the countries in the future, we might be okay. And it just, in the midst of tragedy, I found hope. And 
from then on, it has just become my passion. Um, it's, you know, to help in whatever way I can to help refugees. I believe you are doing a great job. A great work, Lori. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. As, as a refugee, as a refugee, I, I know well what does this support mean for us when we are desperate like asylum seekers looking for safety and looking for a new life. I, I know and understand well what the support means for every single asylum seeker around the world. So, yeah, yeah. thank you very much. And um, Hassan, I, I know many refugees actually in, in the UK, in Europe, even in Canada, when they got the refugee status, they forgot about everything. They just tried to confront the hard life, starting from scratch, looking for a job, um, dealing with the language barrier and so on. But in your case, you choose the opposite. You're now working with the Red Cross Canada and you are helping refugees. Why? Uh, because uh, the experience of general changed and uh, I would love to think that it changed me uh, to be a better person and uh, uh, to help others because I get help. Now it's my time, my turn to give back uh, to my own people and to the community, uh, to the society I'm living in. That's why I uh, I uh, um, signed in for Red Cross and uh, this is uh, it's going to be an exclusive news for you. Uh, you are the first to know that I got promoted today itself. So, uh, oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, so I, we cannot blame refugees, those who are uh, seeking some uh, self salvation or uh, to have some uh, good life for them and for their kids and uh, to enjoy what they must. Uh, uh, they are victims. Uh, most of them are dealing with the trauma. Definitely, and, uh, yes. Uh, and uh, um, I think they came to a conclusion that uh, they cannot change reality. They cannot change what's going on in Syria. They cannot uh, stop the world. They cannot stop or uh, the refugee crisis. So they are trying to focus on their priorities, which is fair enough. For me, um, I'm still single. I don't have uh, the, the barrier of the language. Uh, I still have energy in me to give back to the community. And because I'm known to the media, I have some connection. I have my platform so I can advocate for uh, refugees and because uh, the Canadians are still asking me to speak in public events for all schools or universities for uh, on behalf of the Syrians so I felt the responsibility and uh, I believe that uh, even my own family they are still in Syria and I need uh, to see them uh, uh, in the future safe and happy so a free man is not free until his family or house uh, is free he is not happy until until his family is happy. So in order to help my family, I need to speak on behalf of all Syrians. It was never a personal matter for me since day one at the airport. My first ever tweet uh, when I started my social campaign was, what does it mean to be Syrian? Uh, I did not speak uh, uh, about my problem. I speak, what does it do? What does it mean to be Syrian and how we are facing a, a new type of racism since 2011, a geographical racism? Um, people and the, the international law, the governments are 
are uh, judging us uh, uh, based on our nationality, not based on our own crimes. So sure. that's why I keep advocating. And it's a great opportunity to see Canada, the real Canada. I'm speaking to you now uh, uh, from the north, north of uh, 11, uh, 1,000 1,000 kilometers away from Vancouver, more than that. And it's minus 48, actually, today. So uh, I'm happy to see that face of Canada. And um, I'm happy to help Canadians who uh, help me and uh, uh, to show that we are, as Assyrians, we are uh, skilled workers. We are capable of giving back. We are peaceful people. And we could be a good if not great uh, value, additional value to any community we are living in. Yeah, brilliant. So that's why I'm keeping doing it. So, yeah. Lauren, from your experience, how many people like Hassan have their untold stories and the world doesn't know enough about their struggle? Because I think you are in 2019, you launched an unforgotten project about some of these people. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, because of Hassan, um, I learned about the fate of um, hundreds of refugees, asylum who had been detained by the Australian government on two small South Pacific islands, Manus and Nauru. Um, Australia has a policy uh, which they instituted in 2013, um, whereby any asylum seeker who arrived by boat because um, many of them tried to travel uh, from Indonesia to um, Australia by boat, uh, would be turned back or uh, or else detained. Um, so I was unaware of that situation until you know Hassan was speaking to so many media and was so aware of representing um, the rights of refugees that it was through him that I learned about this. And in 2019, um, there was a very conservative right-wing government in Australia um, who they were the ones that had brought in this um, you know this policy um, of not supporting asylum seekers and there was hope that the uh, there was a general election in May of that month and there was hope that a left-wing government would come in and that they would accept the um, asylum seekers and give them a place to live permanently um, and they, the, the left wing lost, and there was despair within within 24 hours of the loss. I believe there were three suicides uh, within the refugee community on Manasanaru. And I was talking to my daughter, and I said, "This." I explained the situation. I thought there were about a thousand men, mostly men, a few women, in detention. And I was telling her how awful the situation was, and then I just said, "You know what?" I should just sponsor them all, which is completely crazy. And the next morning I woke up and I thought, yeah, I should do this. (laughs) So everyone told me I was nuts because I would have to raise millions of dollars and it wouldn't be possible. And I reached out to the Refugee Council of Australia and met an amazing man there, the executive director, Paul Power. Uh, When he first got my phone message, he thought I was completely insane. And then he called me and I said, and he told me that later. I said, well, why did you call me if you thought I was insane? He goes, I wanted to see how crazy you were. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, he actually, again, because of Hassan, he, while we were talking in that first conversation, he started, I mentioned Hassan and he started Googling 
and he found me and he said, Oh my goodness. Like you're that woman. You're that woman that helped the guy in the airport. He goes, you're legit. <laughs> I said, I like to think so. Um, so we, yeah, we launched that program and, um, it's now, it grew to the point where it was um, too big for me to handle uh, by myself. And so uh, the Refugee Council of Australia and a resettlement agency in Vancouver, Mosaic, stepped up and they have uh, led the charge since early 2020. And uh, it, yes, the project has raised over three and a half million dollars. And, um, and we, the first, you, you uh, know, you know what, Laura, I, I think he should come to the UK because we are facing a draconian immigration bill by the Home Office Secretary. And I think, yeah, uh, you, you, you will achieve a great success here in the UK too. Well, you, you know, and I'm sure you know this, Osama, there are some amazing refugee advocates, which I'm, I'm very grateful to know uh, in the UK. And I, I do feel so sorry for, I actually am a British citizen. I went to school in England um, yeah. for high school. Um, so my heart, part of my heart is, is definitely in the UK. Uh, and I, I, it breaks my heart when I see how cruel and unjust the, 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 the unjust the system is, and I, yeah, I, I feel yeah. so sad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Hassan, back to you in your book, Man at the Airport. You highlighted the fundamental role of social media regarding saving your life there and make the world aware about your tragic story. In the meantime, you, um, in many interviews with The Guardian, with many our um, outlets, you mentioned the hate comments against you from Malaysia, the Arab world, and even from your home country, Syria. So the question, for which context do you think the social media can play a good or a bad role in our lives? Uh, well, it's nothing but a tool, and it's up to us how to use it. It could be a life savior or it could be a weapon of mass destruction. Um, we have a lot of ignorance uh, out there, and uh, those who think that uh, they uh, can achieve something in their life uh, by uh, uh, attacking us or bullying them, or uh, they will prove something to them to the to the to themselves. But uh, we also have governments who are running uh, virtual. Uh, uh, armies uh, on their behalf to advocate on their behalf and to support their claims. Uh, so that's why it is chaos. It's a lot of negativity. But uh, if you believe in what you are doing, then all the hate comments will actually uh, encourage you to do more because you, at that time you will know that you post a nerve. Um, those, uh, and uh, you are getting under their skin, and uh, it's a sign of your uh, uh, success. Actually, uh, I thought at uh, the time, and that's a lesson I, I learned from my late father, that um, in life you have a main battle and you have a secondary battle. So, and look, the secondary battles will just—it's a waste of time. It doesn't matter who win or lose, and you will uh, spend a lot of energy uh, fighting it when you should focus on your main battle. So uh, it was easy for me. I knew that my main battle is to get out of the airport, uh, to stay safe and to come to Canada. Uh, the secondary battle is uh, to answering or replying all the hate comments. Uh, you cannot also blame the Malaysian, for example, because 
it's their country and uh, we are all familiar with the concept uh, blind patriotism uh, uh, no matter what their country did or not, did not do they are there to offend it and uh, um, so they felt it's our their uh, their responsibility to protect their country so they start attacking me because i was uh, shaming publicly shaming them uh, so i understand them others um, um, Uh, like Syria or any uh, part of the world, uh, people sometimes they uh, they will ask a question like "Why him, not me?" and, uh, uh, and that's a normal um, human behavior. Uh, it's 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 natural. Uh, we all uh, want the good things for ourselves as well. Uh, so uh, I think uh, it's not their fault in the Arab. Arabic world, it's the fault of uh, uh, the type of regimes we have and uh, how they are uh, focusing in destroying the generations uh, to build the hate uh, and uh, uh, with all the ethnic groups and religious groups and uh, uh, there's a lot to fight for Sunni, Shia, minority, majority, Arabs, Kurds, uh, um, you are with the government or against it, uh, you are extremist, jihadist, uh, there's a lot to fight for uh, I think uh, it's because of our regimes and, uh, the, the, the and regarding this regime, Hassan, is it, yeah, regarding this regime in the Middle East and, and specifically in Syria, um, is it possible to be advocate for refugee and to campaign for refugee from Syria to be in safety and to start uh, a new life and to not be a critic to the regime, to be just advocate for humanity, not politics? In in uh, in theory, it could be, but uh, in reality, it could not be. Uh, a lot of people, especially in Europe, uh, they took advantage of the system and uh, what happened in 2015 when uh, when the Turkish authority op- just opened the border and we saw that uh, uh, flood of refugees all over uh, Europe. Um, I think all humans deserve to live equally. It doesn't matter your political opinion, hmm. uh, whether you are with or if you are not directly involved in the fight, if there's no blood in your hand, if you are not uh, uh, a criminal uh, where you should be held accountable by the judiciary system, uh, you have the right to, to live, you have the right to raise your kids. Um, if we come to understanding that Uh, we can disagree on a political uh, point of view or level. Uh, that's fine. It's a healthy thing. But that's not the case, uh, unfortunately. Uh, that's the theory. In reality, uh, we are so divided uh, that no one is speaking to each other. And uh, uh, th- that's wrong. That's what hmm. may destroy our civilization and history. But you can advocate in a humanitarian level without being political. I'm trying to do so. But it's so political, the Syrian situation. At one point, whatever you say, even on a humanitarian level, uh, someone will uh, uh, explain it or understand it on a political level. Sure. Regarding the division, you said we are divided. I think the media outlets are divided too regarding the refugees. So, Laura, um, my questions: how do you see the narrative about the refugee in the mainstream media? Oh... Um, I don't think that any any of the mainstream media, or uh, there must be some, but uh, really understand what's happening. This is really just the beginning of mass human migration. 
um, you know, currently most uh, most refugees are uh, for political reasons escaping war or violence. But increasingly, we're going to see environmental refugees, uh, you know, particularly in Africa, where they're facing drought and famine, and people are are, are fleeing for their lives. And so I, I'm I'm disappointed that governments are not recognizing that this is just the beginning. If the, when I started. Um, I think this is right. Well, I think when I started, there were about 45 million displaced people around the world, refugees and and uh, other displaced people. And I think it's 85 million now. It's doubled in six years since I've... Um, and those are the ones that are recognized by UNHCR. So I, I think we all need to accept that this is something we need to build into our policies and um, I, I, I do want to say one thing, though. I want to kind of uh, offer some hope. You know, it's easy to get overwhelmed with these numbers and the tragedy. And I, what I found on my first trip to Greece, um, uh, when thousands of people were arriving on the beach every day, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what can I do? And you know what I did? I, I made them sandwiches. I handed them bottles of water. I gave them dry clothing. I, you know, I, I smiled. And what I realized is that each of us has to figure out what can we do to make, um, to help other people in the world, whether it's refugees or just other people that need our help. Do what you can do and don't beat yourself up for not being able to do huge things. Yeah, and Hassan, in your seven months life at the airport, you got a message from a name from a man who is familiar to the international community after he was murdered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. What exactly did Jamal Khashoggi say to you in this message? Now I can tell you that he was telling me his will, actually, but I did not understand at that time that it was his will. Uh, he told me that uh, he com did some comment about uh, uh, a previous tweet of mine. He said that you it was uh, great uh, keep doing what you are doing. Tell us why uh, we are desperate in the Arab world. Tell us why all our young adults and youth, they are trying to escape their countries and live in the West. Tell us uh, about dream, about revolution, uh, about democracy and human rights. That was his words for me. And then he said something on a personal level that uh, I'm trying uh, to do something for you here in USA with the help of uh, uh, as someone there, uh, but I cannot promise you anything. Uh, at that time, there was a trouble ban uh, for Syrians uh, on the uh, Trump administration, so I knew that it's almost impossible to go to, uh, to USA, but he was trying anyway, and uh, um, he, he did not promise, and that was the great thing. He did not promise. He said, yeah, you know, it's almost impossible, but I will keep trying. And, uh, how, I how, that, uh, yeah. How did you feel yeah, after uh, his murder? Uh, I did not know until 25 days later. I got arrested on October 1st. Hmm. And he got murdered on October 2nd. Second. And when the Malaysian lawyer uh, visited me, I casually asked him, and I explained this uh, in my book, uh, 
I asked him what's what's new outside because for 25 days I heard nothing about the outside world uh, and I, I meant to ask him about Syria uh, the, did they manage to, to remove uh, Bashar al-Assad is there anything new uh, tell me something exciting and he told me casually he thought that I knew he told me that they are all busy with the murder of uh, uh, of the Saudi journalist and I say uh, it hit me hard and said, who? And yeah. I kind of felt it. And he, and he told me, Jamalan. Uh, I remember, I don't remember how I acted. I knew that I was sweating and uh, something very strong hit me. Uh, he said, uh, if I knew, I regret this. I thought, you know, if I knew that you don't know, I wouldn't tell you. And he started apologizing. Yeah, it was a sad news at time. Because yeah. we all knew Jamal, and yeah, that's the Middle East, as you said, Hassan. And my final question to you and to Laura, and I will start with Laura. What is your message to refugees who are looking for safety? Ah, uh, it's, I it is oh that's so difficult because it's important to find something good in your life uh it's so difficult now for refugees to be resettled and i i don't want people to give up hope because you you always need hope we all need hope um at the same time don't miss the beautiful things around you if you have children um you know enjoy watching them grow and learn and interacting with you know nature I was blown away working in the refugee camps by the amazing parents who really succeeded in still providing their children with opportunities to play and to learn and to feel loved. And um, so, you know, it, people may be waiting a long time. So keep trying to live, maintain that hope and try to find the teeniest glimmers of, of beauty in the world around you. Yeah, and Hassan, final question this episode. Your message to people like Laura who are helping refugees to be in safety? Uh, well, that's also a difficult one. I thought you are going to ask me the same question as Laura. And, <laughs> and, uh, thank you. That's the first thing to begin with. Thank you for being you. Thank you for what you are doing. Um, uh, you are uh, making this world a better place to live in. Um, uh, it's people because people like you, the refugees in the refugee camp, are not using hope, and they are dreaming of a better future for them and for, uh, for their, their kids as well. Um, I also want to tell her to not forget herself and. The uh, whatever she's doing to enjoy her life, to stay healthy uh, and uh, uh, to see the joy. I think uh, she knows already, but it's, uh, she knows that uh, she changed. She's changing lives. She already did. And uh, she uh, gave a second chance for people like me. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, because of her, uh, a better person. 
and uh, my life has been changed forever and maybe the life of my family um, uh, it, it's because of people like like Chloe uh, uh, we still see some uh, a good side of this world wow what a strong message Hassan to end this episode with I thank you very much Hassan Al-Kuntar and Laurie Cooper for joining me today so This was the untold stories of the man at the airport, Hassan Al-Kuntar, and the woman who helped him to resettle in Canada, Lori Cooper. Thank you very much for both of you, and thank you for all our listeners in this episode, and see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.